This episode is brought to you by Loyola University Maryland's Master of Theological Studies. Offering an academically rigorous and rewarding education setting with small class sizes and renowned faculty. Learn more and apply at loyola.edu slash theology. Again, that is loyola.edu slash theology. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. We're back! Woo! How's it going? Uh, it's so good to be back in the studio. Uh, and by studio, I mean home studio still, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> And I would say I, I missed you, but you're like literally one of the only people I see <laughs> anymore. No, that's but I true. do miss recording Jesuitical with you. <laughs> yes. I'm glad that you moved to our little pocket of Brooklyn and we were able to be in the same Brooklyn pod. Yep. Walking distance has been great. Yeah. Um, I, so, how was your summer? I guess I suppose I know, but maybe the listeners don't. So, what have you, what have you been up to? Yeah. I don't know. It feels like so much and so little. <laughs> like, you know? It's just the whole world seems to be like shrinking, but also like oppressive on me <laughs> with the news and everything. And so just trying to stay afloat, spend some time in the park, spend some time at Coney Island. Yeah, it feels like there's simultaneously a lot of things happening, both like in the world and but also not a lot happening personally. But there are I, I have trouble placing the course of events. Um, yeah. Just because of, the, as you said, the scale is all weird. Mm-hmm. I know. I can't believe summer's over. I yep. like <laughs> just like that. <laughs> it always goes by fast, but I feel like it's still April, <laughs> or it should be. Yeah. So it's uh, def- summer's over, and it's going to be a very busy fall. It seems like. Uh, gosh. Yeah, the- we got the election, uh, which is already kicking into gear. We got some Vatican news that we'll talk about later. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, we're ready for uh, ready to gear up because uh, we, but we haven't been doing nothing all summer. So we, we do want to say thank you to everybody that filled out the survey results. We are we, we, we looked at them, we studied them. Um, it, we were both flattered by the nice things you said about the show and really uh, took some of the more critical comments very, very seriously. So um, one comment that we're not taking seriously is uh, whoever <laughs> requested my wife as a guest. I. Uh, <laughs> She is very excited about that prospect, but I am sort of like absolutely not. A I think Nabi. it's a great idea. Yeah. Maybe maybe I'll have her on and when you like go out of town some week and she can be your replacement. Just like absolutely <laughs> obliterate the wall between personal and professional life. It's already yeah. like it's already paper thin. So anyway, uh, but yeah. what's on tap for our first show of the new season, Ashley? We are having Steigel Radler. It's a uh, grapefruit beer, and it was the special choice of my sister, Jackie, who is a Catholic school teacher and back in the classroom this week. And like, we just want to honor those teachers who are doing like heroic work right now under really difficult circumstances. And if anyone deserves a drink, it's them. It's you, teachers. (laughs) Yeah. Ashley and I both have sisters who are teaching uh, this fall, and I'll just say I don't know how you all are doing it. So yeah. this uh this is cheers to you and really everybody who's especially also parents working for yeah. which Jackie is both a uh, new parent and a teacher so uh, God love her yeah. and we're, mm-hmm. we're praying for all you guys but uh, this one's for you cheers oh that's really nice yeah no it's super refreshing and I feel like it's a good transition drink between summer and fall like it's not like it's not a pina colada but it's not we're not ready to have like the the hard apple cider yet. I don't think. No, but it's coming. Yeah. All right. And uh, who are we talking to this week? We are talking to Mike Lewis. He uh, writes for a blog called Where Peter Is and hosts a podcast called Peter's Field Hospital. Um, But the reason we're bringing him on today is uh, to talk about a piece he wrote for America. Yeah. The piece was titled Pope Francis' Critics Are Dividing the Church and Families, Including Mine. And I this was an article that resonated with a ton of people towards the end of summer. Um, I think because, you know, as the election's gearing up, people are feeling sort of the vitriol that's in, infected our discourse um, a lot. And a lot of times, for a lot of people, that hits home even within their own families. And 
Our church, unfortunately, is not exempt from some of the polarizing elements that have uh, plagued so much of the rest of our societal discussions. Right. And as the title suggests, this is something that Mike, as you know, a, a professional writer, has observed in the wider church, but also something he has experienced um, personally in his own family. And I think that that lens that he brings to the issue, um, you know, it personalizes it and makes it accessible and real in a way that just kind of like talking about how toxic Catholic Twitter can be doesn't really doesn't it's not going to change any minds um, or engage people uh, in what's a really important discussion about the future of the church and country in the United States. Yeah. So we've got Pope Francis uh, polarization coming up next. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So we got some big news that Pope Francis is signing and releasing a new encyclical called Fratelli Tutti, which he is going to release on the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah. My first reaction to this was like, what have I done with my time in quarantine? Pope Francis wrote a whole encyclical. I have nothing to show. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) No. Well, you know, he doesn't watch any Netflix or TV. So So productive. He's he's been busy. Um, Yeah. So we don't know a lot about the new encyclical, but we we know some things and we can speculate on some others. Uh, The title is uh, Fratelli Tutti, and it's a direct quote of St. Francis of Assisi. Um, It's in Italian, um, and sidebar, so was Laudato Si, which is Pope Francis's last encyclical. um, That was also an Italian quote of St. Francis, Um, which is interesting because most encyclicals up to this point have had Latin titles, so they do get translated into other languages. Right. Um, And before we talk about what we we know this encyclical might address uh, and what we think it might say to this moment— we wanted to, you know, go back to basics. It's been a long summer. We haven't talked about encyclicals in a while. So yeah, this is syllabus week in, in Signs of the Times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so an encyclical uh, is an official teaching document from the Pope. It's addressed to uh, primarily uh, bishops and priests, but also all Catholics and sometimes even non-Catholics. Uh, so Laudato Si, Pope Francis's last encyclical on um, the environment, uh uh, was addressed to every person living on this planet because, you know. Yeah, it turns out that uh, climate change doesn't only affect Catholics. <laughs> right. Yeah, and this is Francis's third encyclical, but in some ways it's only his second. Uh, his first was uh, Lumen Fide, which was on the light of faith, um, which was drafted by Pope Benedict, um, but wasn't uh, released by the time he uh, resigned. And so it was finished and released by Pope Francis. So this is either number yeah. three or two and a half, depending on how you're looking at it. Right, which which signals it's a pretty big deal. Like the, these don't come out every year, um, and so when the Pope decides that a topic is worthy of an encyclical, um, Catholics, you know, should listen up. Right. This isn't necessarily like uh, I don't know. I think the levels of church teaching and particularly papal teaching sometimes get confusing. Um, this is a, a quote unquote serious document, I believe is the theological term, um, <laughs> but it's not like infallible teaching as uh, you might know, that's not often, that's not often invoked, um, almost never invoked by the Pope, but it is an important guidance from the Pope on a contemporary issue that he reflects on from a Christian perspective. Right. So what is this document going to be about? Uh, the title gives us a hint. Uh, so, uh, Fratelli Tutti, I, I believe that translates to brothers of all. Is that right? All our brothers? Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, so we don't know what the English is going to be. It's either going to be brothers, all, or brothers and sisters, all. Um, and so that's going to, uh, we know it's starting from this premise of, you know, we're all God's children, and therefore we need to act like we're brothers and sisters to one another. Right. And so what does that mean in this moment? Uh, I think we can get a clue by what Pope Francis has been talking about during the pandemic. Um, He started back um, early in the spring talking about, um, you know, how important our response to the pandemic is. You know, when this first came, a lot of people were like, why, why would God let this happen? And Pope Francis's kind of response to that is like, that, that's not a question for us to address. What we can talk about is how we're going to respond to this. Are we going to let this deepen our divisions or are we going to uh, let it increase solidarity between people, between nations? Right. So again, like it's going to, it sounds like it's going to hit on a lot of themes like solidarity that Pope Francis has been, you know, harping on for some time now, but especially since the pandemics happened. I also wonder, um, this is coming at a time when we're, at least in the United States, um, but also other places around the world, um, really reckoning with some racial injustices that have gone uh, 
ignored and underappreciated uh, by a lot of people. Um, and so I do wonder if racism is going to come up in this document at all. Um, but this is a this is uh, something he's been working on for more than quarantine, right? And so this builds off a lot of work that he's already done during his papacy. Right. So back in 2019, he signed a groundbreaking document on human fraternity with uh, the grand imam of Al-Azhar, which is like the, the top uh, imam in the uh, Sunni Muslim world in Egypt um, during his papal trip to Abu Dhabi. And that's that was like a very important document, especially um, since then, Francis has given it to every head of state that's visited him at the Vatican. Right. Yeah. And that that suggests that maybe this is the kind of document that will be addressed to to not just Catholics, because it's it's about solidarity and fraternity across um, religious lines, too. Yeah. Pope Francis has sort of indicated that, look, the world's at a, a tipping point right now. Um with the, I mean, especially during the pandemic, but even before that, with the rise of nationalism in a lot of places, and we have uh, some problems coming our way that, uh, as a human race, we're going to need to work together to solve. That was sort of, I think, a point that he was trying to make in Laudato Si. Um, and so, Francis is a firm believer that religions of the world, um, the churches included in that, have a role to play in building up a future where we work together on these problems. Right, and. I guess, you know, we can only speculate at this point, but we know we know the theme of fraternity um, being brothers and sisters to one another. Um, And so, you know, in preparation for the release of the document, you know, I think we can think about what that means for us as young Catholics in this moment. I think I don't know. I found it helpful to just like think seriously about like how I would treat someone like. How how would you treat someone on Twitter who is annoying you if if you think of that person as your as your brother or your sister? Like if my if my brother tweeted something um, obnoxious, would I like quote tweet him and like try to shame him, or would I you know text him and be like, hey Thomas, what's going on here? <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends at what point you two are in, in that relationship. Uh, <laughs> but now I think that's probably right with you and Thomas. Um, I, you know, just today at, uh, Francis's weekly audience, I loved what he said about loving your enemies. He said, there's, there's almost, it's difficult and there's almost an art to it. Um, and which I really loved because, you know, it's oftentimes we, we talk about that being a fundamental Christian teaching to love one's enemies, but there really is like, it's as Francis says, an art to it. And I'm excited to see in this document, what are some, uh, tips and tricks that Francis has for maybe doing that, uh, particularly for young Catholics, it'll be on us to sort of take some of this and uh, apply it to, as you were mentioning, Ashley, the digital space. Yeah. All right. What's our next story, Ashley? So we've talked about the church. Now we're going to move on to the world of politics. Uh, Labor Day, we just passed that. Uh, It marks the unofficial start of the presidential campaign season, though it seems like we've been (laughs) in it for a couple months now. Yeah, I don't know who who, who (laughs) makes the official or unofficial start dates, but they all seem very arbitrary. Yeah, so we, you know, over the summer, uh, we had the Democratic and Republican national conventions, um, and the the candidates, uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, have already hit the campaign trail. Um, So, like all Americans, Catholics are weighing their choices in this moment. So we wanted to talk a little bit about what goes into into the so-called Catholic vote. Yeah. And particularly today, we wanted to focus in on uh, whether or not uh, church leaders should be how how they should be talking about the election and whether they should be endorsing candidates. Um, while studies show that most Catholics don't actually look to their bishops or priests for political guidance, um, there are still a number of prominent Catholic leaders who are uh, giving either some ex- some explicit or some implicit uh, endorsements in this election. Yeah, so so far we've seen prominent Catholics like Father Greg Boyle, the Jesuit who heads up Homeboy Industries. He's come out publicly for uh, Joe Biden. Um, and then... We have Sister Simone Campbell, who heads up Network, which is a social justice lobby group. Uh, They didn't endorse Biden, but they did say uh, Catholics cannot in good conscience vote for Trump. And then on the other side, we have a bishop, Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas, endorsing a video that in which a Catholic priest said you cannot be a Catholic and a Democrat. So some some conflicting signals. <laughs> yes. Um, and you, like many things, people like to just find their the person that represents their views and uses it as a club right. to hit other people over the head. But it does raise an important question. Uh, 
especially given that um, these are very visible members of church leadership, um, priests and sisters. Mm -hmm. And can Catholic priests and religious endorse political candidates? And should they? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Whether they can or not, should they? (laughs) Right. Uh, So our colleague, Jim Keane, thankfully, wrote a very thorough and helpful explainer um, that dives into these uh, pretty fraught questions. Uh, And helpfully, he divides it into like the legal answer, like what U.S. law says uh, priests and religious can do, and then what the church says religious leaders can and can't do. Yeah, we'll try to do it justice here, but you should go read the whole piece at americamagazine.org. And so legally, priests and religious can definitely endorse in their capacity as individual citizens, um, but not on behalf of their parish or any other religious organization because entities of the church are treated as nonprofit uh, 5013Cs under tax law, and endorsements would run afoul of what's called the Johnson Amendment, which prohibits any nonprofit from engaging in political endorsements. Right. So that's so that's the legal side. Uh, but in terms of what the church says, uh, they they really discourage pastors of the church from engaging in direct political advocacy. Um, so the catechism says that it is not the role of pastors of the church to intervene directly in the political structuring and organization of social life. Uh, and it says explicitly that this is the role of lay Catholics um, to you know engage in politics in this way. Um, and I thought it was interesting. They in a different uh, document um, on on the clergy, they say that one of the reasons behind this is that um, if a if a priest is you know engaged in uh, tasks of a purely political nature, uh, this constitutes a grave loss to the church's evangelical fruitfulness. Basically, like you know, if if a priest <laughs> gets too political, it's going to make it harder for him to to spread the gospel. And that's a, you know, there's a lot of loaded words there, I think, um, especially because we've seen frustration, I think, from our peers and our listeners that their priests aren't or their church leaders are not political enough in the sense that they're not paying attention to the signs of the times. Right. It's it's it is often jarring to witness something like uh, a mass shooting or Mm -hmm. a video of police violence and not hear from the pulpit some talk about some of the issues, at least, that are Mm -hmm. uh, plaguing our time. But if it is boiled down into one person or one party, I think that is where a lot of people do get turned off. Right. Um, and so some context for this. This is this is these are pretty recent developments. Uh, it, it wasn't that long ago in much of the world where there was not the the separation of church and state that we experience today um, or, you know, the democracy that we experience today. No, uh, I mean, even just last century, you had a Jesuit who did over 10 years in Congress, Robert Drinan. Right. So you had a mm-hmm. Jesuit priest as a member of Congress. Just let that sink in just uh, in the last like 50, 60 years. Though the the Vatican did eventually intervene, and I, I think it was like in 1980, told him that he he should not seek another term because they weren't too happy with how that was going. But back, you know, you only have to go back to 1900 to have the Vatican condemning as heresy, uh, quote unquote, Americanism, this this idea of separation in church and state, and the church kind of like receding from politics. Um, in, in the way that was happening in the U.S. Yeah, so it's definitely, like you alluded to, Ashley, it's not one of these like things that the church has like been had a consistent teaching on for 2,000 years. No. You know, we're very much working it out in real time. Um, and so we're going to contribute to that here, and I want to put the question to you, Ashley. Mm. Uh, do you, who, which Jesuit would you like to see serving in Congress today? <laughs> and... <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but no, seriously, what, what what do you want to see from maybe your pastor, for example, um, as far as uh, do you want to see him come out and endor- fully endorsing someone? Do you want to see him talking about issues? Do you want to see him just keep politics totally out of it? Yeah, I definitely do not want a direct endorsement from my pastor. Um, I would be very turned off by, by that, even if they endorse the person I want to vote for. I just I'm with the church teaching on this and that I do think it's it gets in the way of the priest's pastoral duties like even if I agree with who the priest is endorsing I don't want someone else in my parish to feel like they can't go to the priest with a pastoral issue because they're afraid that like you know they disagree on politics and the priest isn't you know is going to be judging them because they are going to vote for someone else and maybe the parishioner doesn't trust the priest because he's come out in favor of a different candidate so i just i don't want politics to 
I don't know, infect that that pastoral relationship. Um, but, you know, I I don't know. And I'm also less we've talked about this on the show before about, yeah, whether we want to hear like kind of like politically inflected homilies from the pulpit. And I I think there's space for that. I think I'd want it to be I do want it to be like grounded in the, the readings of that week where possible. Sure. I don't I don't want the like liturgy of the word, which is supposed to be based in the word that we're reading that week to be thrown out so that we can get like a political polemic from the pulpit. Um, but I'm not I'm not against like using using the gospel as a lens for looking at contemporary issues, I guess. Yeah, I guess priest what Ashley's saying is write a perfect homily. Yeah, Look, exactly. <laughs> um, what there, I, I hear what you're saying, although I do want to, I think, caution against the trend that I, I see, um, which is to sort of pretend that th- things that are political aren't, um, mm. right? Like even like you'll see, I think, celebrities who are involved in uh, the basketball players, for example, uh, in the NBA talking about how the Black Lives Matter movement isn't a political movement. It's a human movement, mm. which I hear. On the other hand, Humans are political uh, animals, as Aristotle <laughs> says, right? Like, and so th- there's no reason to think that politics has to be a dirty word. And all of these these hu- quote unquote human issues are in fact political issues. And I think particularly Catholics should you know own that and not try to hide behind like, oh, I you know I don't do politics or I don't get involved in politics. Or, I'm not a political person. Um, you, you know. I, I referenced uh, Francis's uh, Wednesday audience earlier, but he also said today that you know, we're social and political beings. And one of the highest mm-hmm. expressions of love is specifically social and political, right? And yeah. so we are really called to like be involved in that, even if we're supposed to sort of shy away from maybe explicitly endorsing candidates. I guess my response to that and what I think some church documents say is like, yes, politics are important, but like it's your your faith should inform your politics, not your politics dictate what parts of the faith you take seriously. Um, so that's just kind of like where I ground myself. Yeah. Um, and and in the reality that no politician is ever going to fully embrace all of Catholic teaching, um, at least not, I, I haven't seen it yet. Um, and so that just, that does create a large space um, that the church is encouraging lay Catholics to like use their conscience, discern, listen, study church teaching and, and make a real choice. And, and I think feel comfortable that they, they can exercise their choice in that realm. I think that's a good place to wrap up, but we do want to ask our listeners, uh, what do they think? What have, what have they been hearing from their, uh, maybe their pastors or their church leaders or on social media? Um, you should let us know that. And also if you have an answer to which Jesuit today you'd like to see serving Congress, <laughs> I would be willing to hear or entertain, uh, those, <laughs> So please send them, tweet us at at Jesuitical Show or send us an email at Jesuitical at AmericaMedia.org. And up next, we have our conversation with Mike Lewis, and we're going to talk about how Pope Francis's critics are dividing the church and families. Joining us from Beltsville, Maryland, is Mike Lewis. Mike is the managing editor of the website Where Peter Is and the podcast Peter's Field Hospital. Welcome to Jesuitical, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, We brought you on to talk about this piece that you wrote for America back in August titled Pope Francis's Critics Are Dividing the Church and Families, Including Mine, uh, that really resonated with our our readers. Um, And you go into this story about the divisions in the U.S. church in a very personal way, which I think is why it resonated so much because it's it's hard to like grapple with these big questions uh, about factions in the church. Um, and but when you tell it through the story of a relationship with one person, it kind of it kind of becomes more real for people, I think. Um, so can you just start by telling us about your mother? What what was her faith and what was the faith she passed on to you as as a child and young man? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking that question. Um, my mom was a very extremely uh, devoutly religious woman. She put her faith first 
in in her life and in our lives. And she taught us very well. She was an elementary school teacher and a very good one. When we were growing up, she really she taught us our history. She taught us our faith. Um, we had a religious children's library of of saints' books and and children's Bibles. Um, being being Catholic was central to who we were as a family. And so, yeah, it was really, really her example helped transmit the faith to me. Um, obviously, as you grow older, uh, you kind of face that choice of, of whether or not to um, leave the faith or make the faith your own. And I think she really gave me and my siblings the, the building blocks to build upon what she gave us. Going off of that, how did the faith that she passed on to you sort of become your own, or what were what were some of the differences maybe in the Catholicism that you two shared? Well, I think one of the things that I think maybe I had a little bit too much of, or or growing up was maybe a big part of of my thinking towards religion was sort of what Pope Francis maybe will describe as rigidity or a focus on rules. Um, seeing things as black and white. And as I got older, I started to understand issues of social justice a little bit more, the nuances in people's lives. I think I maybe became a little bit less uh, judgmental about those things. As I got older, I started to realize really what it meant to have a relationship with Christ and to live and experience the joy of God's love. So I can I, I hear you describing your own evolution, and I, I I can sort of hear some listeners going like, "Oh yeah, that's great, good for him." Like I'm I'm glad he uh, evolved, quote unquote. Um, and then I can hear another set of listeners that might be hearing that and going like, "Ah, he softened up. Should have listened to his mom." Is that is that your own like understanding of how people frame discussions like this? Yeah, I mean, I think I think when people, um, especially since I I wasn't really putting my um, my thought out there publicly or um, writing or speaking. I, I think the good people, old days, right? <laughs> good, yeah. Back there. But pe- so when people, when people um, read my stuff, they think like this, Oh, this guy's a big lefty or, you know, he's a modernist or, but really I think what happened was um, I started taking my faith more seriously rather than than just sort of having it as something that was always looming in the background or was always in or was always the elephant in the room. I worked uh, for seven years at the at the bishops' conference, and I started going to daily mass every day at lunchtime. I think in that sense, it was really I mean, it was the result of a growth in my spiritual life that was long before Pope Francis, or you know, years before Francis became pope, and then. When Francis did become Pope, it was as if all the pieces were falling into place. All the teachings of the church, the tradition of the church, God's love, God's mercy, what it means to be a pastor. He really embodied a lot of the lessons that I that I had learned. Yeah. How did your mother's experience of the beginning of the Francis papacy uh, differ from yours, or did it at first? I think it did. At first, I think she, you know, she was a regular viewer of EWTN. Um, she was a, a subscriber to The Wanderer. She had a lot of friends who were very devoted readers of a lot of reactionary websites and blogs and propaganda. And so, when Pope Francis would do something, like I remember one of the first things that he did as Pope was that that first Holy Thursday rather than having the mass in St. Peter's Basilica, the mass of the Lord's Supper, he held it in a youth prison and washed the feet of male and female youth, young men and young young women, including a couple that weren't even Christian. And a lot of conservative or reactionary blogs were were saying that this was liturgically improper, that this wasn't orthodox, that this wasn't right. And I think she was she was starting to to raise some suspicions or starting to show some suspicion right from the beginning. My reaction was it doesn't really matter whose feet he's washing if by doing this is he is he spreading the joy of the gospel? Is he sharing the charisma? And then when uh Evangelii Gaudium came out, my heart was just like, wow, this is, this is it. This is, 
this is someone who really who really gets what what the church needs right now. Now, my mom, on the other hand, um, I don't think she ever read anything that he ever wrote. Just reading about it. She was reading about it. She was yeah. hearing these things from her friends. Um, you know, she barely knew how to check her email. So <laughs> it, it was it was whenever she wanted to check her email, it was like an event, like, oh, we're gonna do email, you know, and then and then so I would have you know, I would help her log in and and then I would see like her her inbox would be full of forwards from from friends of hers sharing stories from from some of these reactionary publications and websites. And I was like, Mom, you aren't reading these, are you? And she's like, Well, I don't, you know, and leave me alone. These mm-hmm. are my emails. And and um then I think around the time of uh, Amoris Laetitia, so that's a couple of years into into the papacy, and that that came out in early early 2016. And this is the one on family and marriage and divorce. Exactly, and yeah. following a couple of very contentious uh, synods on the family in 2014 and 2015. Mm-hmm. Basically, what happened was the the Catholic right wing reactionary pundits decided or declared that Pope Francis was a heretic or he was teaching doctrinal error and she took them at their word. So for maybe three or four months, we would, we would argue about it all the time. And then at a certain point I realized, well, you know, this isn't, this isn't going anywhere. I'll just stop talking about it and I'll, you know, I'll just pray. And I I held my tongue as much as I could. Um, but I wasn't perfect. But you two were able to like have civil conversations about it. I, I, you know, I don't know if there's ever a good way to argue with your mother. My mother will listen to this and text me right after and say, yeah, correct. You were right, Zach. Don't even think about it next time. I don't, I don't think, I think she was, um, entrenched in the view. I, I don't think that there was a way, I think she was mad at him in her mind. He had betrayed what, she understood the Catholic faith to be and what she had held fast to. And there were, of course, other issues and other things that he supposedly said. And, you know, the reporting on this is is just constantly negative and it's a constant barrage. Um, and I mean, that's part of the reason why I started my website. So I've got this, you know, this defense of Francis part of my life that's going on. And then there, I've got this other part of my life where in my family with my mom who only lived three and a half miles away from me. Um, so we saw each other pretty regularly. And and once she got sick, my wife and I and my sister were her primary caretakers. Um, so there was always this, like I said before, there's always an elephant in the room. Um, here I was doing one thing and, and she was very much against it. Yeah, no, it was a really raw and, uh, poignant part of the piece when you talk about the fact that, you know, when she passed away, she, she, uh, did so still thinking Pope Francis was a heretic. And as you said, meanwhile, you've started a website where Peter is, uh, dedicated to challenging the claims of the Pope's fiercest critics. So I imagine that must've been a lot of, a lot of things to hold together at once. Um, so, so why, why did you feel compelled to, to, to create this public platform? to talk about Pope Francis and your own faith? The main reason I I actually started this, it wasn't about my mom or my own personal story. It was that having gotten more involved with my faith, probably beginning in 2009, 2010, um, I had formed a lot of relationships either at my parish or, um, like I said, I worked for the church. So with a lot of my colleagues and I started to notice this, this persistent resistance to Pope Francis. And at first I, I thought that that was sort of a, a fringe movement that was out there, but then it was almost like I woke up one morning in 2015 or 2016 and, and all of my Catholic friends hated the Pope. <laughs> and I don't know. I, I mean, I, I kind of equate it to, to almost like one of those one of those zombie movies where the the outbreak happens and and three or four people stand out on the street looking at each other like you know where is everybody what happened you know all these people that we had been huge fans of of Pope Benedict together we had um you know we'd had all these deep discussions about the faith and and these are people you know these are priests these are people who who work for the church all of a sudden their focus became 
what was going on that was wrong in Rome and with the Pope. Um, now, I had had some concerns in previous years because I I had I had some of these reactionary tendencies myself. Um, I think if I hadn't had my my so to speak conversion, I might very well have been one of them. Um, I know personally the fear that comes with thinking that the church is going to be sabotaged or that they there might someday be a, a um, heretical pope that will take down the church. And a very good friend of mine who is a priest, I remember asking him before Francis was pope, but I asked him like, well, how do you know if what the pope is teaching is really the church teaching? And he looked at me like I had three heads. <laughs> and, and um, you know, he sort of he, he he explained to me what the magisterium was, what magisterial authority was. He gave me a few books. He handed me a document, a CDF document that was written under Pope Emeritus Benedict about the primacy of the Pope. And I read I read it and I realized, wait a minute, it's not up to me to decide that what the church is teaching is Catholic. I mean, yeah, we can be in dialogue with it. We can try to understand it better. We can try to tease out some nuances, but it's not, um, we don't have that authority. And part of the reason why is because we're all unified together with the Pope and we're able to focus on our own spiritual lives and our own sanctity um, without having to worry whether or not the things that our church is teaching are orthodox. But I and so when when Francis became Pope and I started to see people being challenged, I I thought I was catching up to where everyone had been all along. I didn't realize that <laughs> this was sort of a novel thing. Um, I got together with a with a few people that I had actually met online, basically getting into these online arguments or debates about Pope Francis and whether or not he was he was a good Pope or not. And basically, I suggested to to three other collaborators, hey, why don't we start posting this stuff uh, as a blog, um, these things that we're already saying, and rather ha- rather than having them be lost forever on Twitter or Facebook somewhere, let's compile our thoughts somewhere and, you know, try to help out the church in that way. You know, that's actually a good segue. Like, I, I, I think that you mentioned both the internet and this being sort of a novel experience under Pope Francis. Um, do you think that it we are experiencing something unique under Pope Francis, or there've always been Catholics that have been critical of popes throughout time, right? So what is it Francis in particular, or is it the rise of internet culture that's sort of contributing to all of this? Because obviously, you know, there's something happening in our secular discourse as well. Yes. Well, if you look at the history, I would say that this movement that is now being very effective or or very publicly vocal against Pope Francis has actually been afoot since Vatican II. If you look at the history of the SSPX, the Society of St. Pius X and their leader, Marcel, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, um, they were making the exact same arguments against Pope St. Paul VI, against John Paul II, that now more mainstream and more well-known and more public figures are making against Pope Francis. I think that unlike his two predecessors, Pope Francis's heart for the poor and for social justice is impossible to ignore. I think in the U.S. in particular, and I think this is largely a U.S. phenomenon, you look at different institutes in the United States that claimed to be allies or to be on the same page as John Paul II and Pope Benedict. But at the same time, they either ignored or downplayed John Paul II's opposition to the um, to the Iraq war. They downplayed Benedict's social encyclical. But these were these were individual documents. They had moral teachings that they could focus on. They had, there were powerful American bishops who claimed to be teaching in line with, with the Pope and in line with Catholic social teaching. Whereas with Pope Francis, I think there, there's something much more unavoidable about his mission and his view. 
And I think that is, it's impossible to paper over, uh, which I think they tried to do maybe in the first year or two of his papacy. And now I think at a certain point they realized that they would just have to openly oppose him. Yeah. That said, uh, your site is called Where Peter Is, uh, not Where Francis Is. Um, where Peter is, there is the church. So what does that, what does that say about your mission? Is like, is this about just, you know, defending Pope Francis or is there, is there something larger there? Definitely. There's something larger there. The, the inspiration for the name comes from two places. There's the famous quote by St. Ambrose, where Peter is, there is the church, there is God. Basically saying, if you're looking for the church, look to the church of Rome um, and to the successor of Peter. But the true inspiration is actually from a speech by Cardinal Tagle as um, Pope Francis was leaving the Philippines. And Cardinal Tagle made a, a statement along the lines of, the people of the Philippines don't want to see you go, so we're all coming with you. And, uh, you know, that was the laugh line. And he goes, but not to Rome to the periphery. The other thing is we didn't find that there were a lot of media outlets who were taking a close look at this growing resistance to the Pope from within established Catholic outlets as well as new media. Why do you think that is? I have my own ideas, but... There are a couple of things. On one hand, I think that a lot of people say, don't give them oxygen. You, if you don't, if you know, if you don't talk about them, then they'll go away. I think mm -hmm. in other cases, people will say, you know, these, these are just the fringe. These are just crazies. If you give them attention, that's what they're looking for. And my concern isn't so much for these talking heads, but it's for the regular people in the pews. And we're talking not just the people in the pews, but also parish priests. We're talking bishops. Yeah, you you included in the in your piece some of like the anecdotes you've heard from people about about priests and seminarians. Can you can you tell some of the specifics of those cuz it, it was surprising to me to hear. I have a very good friend who's a seminarian and um w actually he was assigned to my parish for a pastoral year and one of the first times we got together for dinner uh, we were just talking about Pope Francis. I wasn't really talking about the site, but we were just talking about the church and Pope Francis. And he goes, wow, this is, this is a conversation I can never have at seminary. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, all they want to talk about is what the Pope is doing wrong. They're sharing life site news articles with each other. They're following certain churchmen who are particularly polarizing. These are their role models. Um, and I was, I was a little bit shocked at that. And I said, well, well, what percentage of, of your fellow seminarians do you think subscribe to this, to this ideology, to this worldview? And now he goes to a seminary that has a reputation for being moderate. Um, and he said, I would say it's a full 60 to 70%. And I was like, really? As like a natural moderate, I'm kind of worried about painting every critic with the same broad brush, like not, not everyone who's has some misgivings about Pope Francis is, is Michael Voris at church militant. Um, and as you said before, there, you know, there are, you know, plenty of Catholics who are very critical of, uh, John Paul II or Benedict the 16th. Um, so I'm wondering, like, are there, are there good faith critics in your mind? You know, I, you know, if I could jump in with one yeah. theory and if maybe I'm totally off base, but I feel like something that has changed is there, the, it's the line is whether you're trying to like say whether the Pope or the people who like him are are real Catholics or not, and sometimes there's a different adjective that gets thrown in there, um, like faithful or orthodox, or there's there's an effort to sort of like discredit the the, the sacramental identity of other members of our church, and I feel like that is where it crosses the line. I agree. And, and actually, as what, as I was saying, what I was saying, I was, you know, starting to, to self, uh, to self censor a little bit because I was, I was having the same reaction to my own words. I think that Ashley was, <laughs> um, because it's, we don't want to attack people. And, and I guess one of the things that, that strikes me is that this rhetoric that these, these firebrands 
I mean, they're influencing real people who have really good intentions, who are trying to be good Catholics. And and Zach, you're you're a hundred percent right that there there's this rhetoric of people who say that so and so isn't a real Catholic, or um, I mean, we we obviously see that during the election season. And I mean, where Peter is, we try to give the benefit of the doubt to the person. However. Like, for example, I've written a couple of pieces actually about Cardinal Burke and some of the words that he said that I think are are contrary to Catholic teaching, that are unnecessarily um, harming the church. But I think his heart is in the right place. Like, I really think that he's trying to save souls and that he cares about the church. But some of the things that he's saying, and on top of that, some of the fires that he is stoking— with other people, with the people who listen to him, are causing significant damage. And I mean, the thing is, I really care about people discovering the truth. So what's the way what's the way forward, I guess? Because I think, you know, like yourself, we in on this podcast in at America, you know, we're hoping to be in the ministry of reconciliation. So how do you think we we get to that point um in a church that is as polarized as we've talked about it. I I hate to be clericalist about it, but I think that the leadership really has to come from the bishops. Um, I mean, I know Bishop Barron is is starting to address some of these things head on because he spends so much time on the internet and social media. He understands these trolls. He he hears it himself. Um, other bishops. I mean, I've I've spoken to some of the more moderate and progressive bishops in this country. And to speak frankly, they have no clue what's going on, what's going on in their dioceses, what's going on in their seminaries, what the type of media that their most active faithful members are consuming. And I think if the bishops themselves, the diocesan bishops, actually spoke out publicly and and basically I'm trying to educate, and I think I think you guys are too, but I think it's gonna take some some real leadership to turn the corner on this. And if it doesn't come from the bishops, I I don't really know who else it would come from because, you know, Pope Francis, a lot of people have already dismissed him. Yeah. Well, we we like to think that bishops listen to this podcast, (laughs) Um, but but for for the ones that aren't bishops, uh, they're just, you know, regular Catholics um, in the pews who maybe are having a similar experience that you've had in your own family or are are feeling these tensions in their own lives what what advice would you have for engaging in constructive dialogue um for you know keeping your faith when it seems like the church has become this divisive place well for one thing if you hear something outrageous you think is going on in the church if you hear a, a news story from lifesite news or from michael voris or taylor marshall i would uh, advise pausing before leaping to a a rash conclusion and try to gather your information from a variety of sources where peter is is one america is another where um, you can scribe for one low price <laughs> <laughs> that's right click the button below to uh <laughs> to register and subscribe um but I, I think it's important that we understand that the church is in God's hands and that things often aren't as sensational as they seem. Um, and and that's, that's one thing. If something sounds totally outrageous, I think one of the problems is nowadays, and especially in our conspiracy theorist culture, is that we ascribe sinister motives to people. I think in a lot of cases, or in most cases, people are really trying to do their best and really trying to help people and really trying to do good. They might not be right, but I think we should try to understand where they're coming from. Yeah. That's a, yeah Amen that's a to that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, one more question. Yeah, we okay. do have one more question for you. Um, and this is something we ask all of our guests. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, uh, who would it be and why? Well, I would like to nominate a servant of God, Walter Sizek, the great Jesuit priest who spent time in the Russian gulag and has written two books that really um, 
changed my life. He leadeth me and with God in Russia. And since I'm talking to a Jesuit outlet, I figured um, <laughs> I would name this great Jesuit priest. Um, so I've lost both parents in the last four years. The fourth anniversary of my dad's death was last week. But when my dad had cancer, um, the, um, you know, when people are like, well, who should we pray to for, for intercession, for a miracle? And uh, Walter Sizek was the person that my dad decided on. So I'd love to see him become a saint. Um, I'd love to see some miracles through his intercession. So um, he's my nomination. Yeah. And we've mentioned it a couple times, but one last time, where can people find your work? They can uh, find me at wherepeteris.com, and they can subscribe to my podcast, Peter's Field Hospital, wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This episode of Jesuitical is brought to you by Crisis, a Catholic project podcast series about the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. Host Carna Lozoya talks to bishops, survivors, reporters, many more to help navigate a systemic problem that's long plagued the church. And this is an important issue that we've covered on Jesuitical. And last year, America Media produced Deliver Us, which was also about the sexual abuse crisis in the church. And it's hard to believe with everything else going on, but this is still a problem, and the church still needs to keep this conversation going. You know, we've made some reforms, but it's definitely not done yet. So we're excited to see this new podcast out from Catholic University of America. So check out Crisis wherever you get your favorite podcasts. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we want to give a big thank you to all of our members of the Patreon community, and a special thank you to our new patrons who joined over the summer. So, got... Got a long list here. So Christy J. Ivancic. We've got Brent and Suzanne Roden, who are my uh, wonderful wife, Amanda's aunt and uncle. So thank you <laughs> to the in-laws. We got David Qatar, Angel Barrera. Jonathan McCallum, Annie Aaron, and Nora McMahon, who left our Patreon community this summer. And we normally don't publicly shame uh, patrons <laughs> who leave, um, but we did want to give a special shout out to Nora, who is uh, leaving to become a missionary with the Franciscan Mission Service this fall. Um, so we just wanted to say uh, good luck, and we're praying for you, and we're in gratitude for your ministry. So thanks, Nora, for all your support, and good luck uh, in the missions. Yeah, and I also want to thank again the people who filled out the survey. It was super helpful for thinking about kind of the future of the show, the direction we want to take. And I was just kind of like in awe of how like smart and diverse the Jesuitical community was. Mm -hmm. Like we asked them what other podcasts they listened to or like what they want us to talk about. And like the answers were really smart. Yeah. Um, and s speaking of things we're doing more moving forward, um, we're working on some new merch uh, for the show. Uh, you may have spotted the Jesuitical t-shirt that members of our Patreon community have gotten. I'm actually wearing it right now. I was so afraid I was going to forget how to record Jesuitical that I was like, all right, <laughs> I need to get in the mood. I'm putting on my Pope Francis t-shirt. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, so we're thinking about what types of things uh, would be good to help uh, support the show and maybe give you some swag to show your love and support for the show. Right now, we're, we're leaning towards some kind of... Uh, I guess this isn't too early to promise. Um, maybe like a shot glass or a beer glass, mm. that, you know, something along the lines of what's on tap. But we would love to hear your ideas too. So if you've got ideas for merch, uh, please send them in. And we did get a ton of new listeners uh, over the summer, thanks to um, the sharing that all of you guys did. And so uh, we want to welcome all of them. And also, if you are new to the show or old to the show, please continue to help spread it, right? It's going to help uh, yeah. grow the show, um, build this community up even more. So- Tell a friend this week if you haven't told someone about Jesuitical in a couple days. And finally, we have Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our life this week or summer and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? This is, uh, man, it's been a long time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got- I know, I was joking that like, I told Eric, like, get ready for like an hour long therapy session when we do <laughs> prep this week. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I know there's been a lot, lot happening uh, internally. Um, 
So I've got like a sweeping desolation, uh, I would say, that's sort of been overarching throughout the summer. I don't know. One of the things that I know about myself is that I sort of struggle with feeling like I am uh, in my roles to other people. I I struggle in feeling like I'm not enough. Like I'm not a good enough husband or son or brother or friend or grandson. or uh, It's sort of a thing that always just like I, I hear like, oh, you are... You're, you know, you're leaving them behind. You're not focusing on them. You're not enough. And it's not not in any way a, a fruitful or productive note, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and during the pandemic, it's been really hard because while it feels like there's not a lot going on, you know, people's lives haven't stopped and people are going through hard things. And, you know, the voice that I hear is, oh, well, you didn't support them through that. Oh, well, you've been you've been MIA. Go figure. Uh, what was your excuse? What did you have going on? Also nothing. Um, and I can't say that's like moving me into like despair. Um, like I, I'm at least able to name it. I like know that that's happening and I know that is not the voice of God, but I, uh, you know, talking to Eric about this, father Eric about this, it's uh, the next step is that I need to bring this to God because God is never one who says you are not enough. Right. And so, I'm sort of in the middle of this in my prayer life where I'm saying like, okay, no, this isn't, this isn't reality. Um, but I, uh, I need to bring it to prayer because I need to see where God is actually inviting me to grow because there's definitely growth to be had, but it's not where I'm at right now. So that's my desolation this week. Yeah. What do you got, Ashley? I kind of, yeah, kind of sweeping desolation, but like a little bit of a little consolation there. Um, so yeah, I like was trying to when I talked to Father Eric, just like you know, sum up four months of like spiritual dryness, and it was like, yeah, I've just like been in the desert, but like the desert was not like me being like ascetic and drinking water and not having <laughs> enough bread to eat. It was like kind of like slipping into a bit of like hedonism. Not like you know, I'm not like <laughs> it's not like you can go to like crazy parties or anything. But like I don't know, I kind of adopted it. Like you know what regular life is on hold you know what's the point in like trying to like move forward in anything right now like I'm just gonna like you know get some drinks go to the beach not go to church not really replace church with anything else um and not feel guilty about it because like the world's falling apart and whatever (laughs) it's kind of like been my attitude which is like not great and it, it there have been like moments of like you know, fleeting happiness in that, but there there hasn't been the kind of peace and deep fulfillment that like you would associate with consolation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like was thinking about that, and then like you know, <laughs> the this recording was coming up, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to like come up with consolation and desolation, <laughs> and it was, uh, and I was just like, it was Monday night. I was lying in bed, and I was like, okay, I guess I'm gonna have to try to talk to. God now, even though it's been a few months. And like, I was like, okay, just start with what you know, say something you're grateful for. <laughs> uh, and so I just like, you know, brought up in my mind's eye, like my my new niece, Alice, Alice Rose McKee. And I thought about my unconditional love for this like new person that I've only known for six months and how, you know, yes, she's adorable, but she hasn't done anything to like earn my love. Like she just kind of is like this baby that I love (laughs) um and it just like got me thinking about like okay like I if I can love Ellis this way why can't I imagine like anyone else loving me this way why can't I imagine my family loving me this way why can't I imagine my friends loving me this way why can't I imagine God loving me this way and so I didn't have an answer to that but I was at least able to like in that like (laughs) small moment of prayer that I've managed to eke out over the last (laughs) few months (laughs) able to like come to this realization like okay this is something i need to i need to think about and and bring to prayer and maybe bring to spiritual direction at point at some point um so there was some some small insight came out of my my summer of wandering in the desert you know as also known as coney island (laughs) (laughs) as a perennial procrastinator i i I would like to think of it as a procrastinator's prayer it it seemed very fruitful so (laughs) i take a lot of heart in that but no it's so hard right now and this but with like i mean this recording i know is a source for you and i of like yeah routine and prayer structure and And we've like lost all structure like i don't have mass right like that was at least my like one time where i was like guaranteed 
to have some quiet time with God. And it's just, yeah, it's been rough. Yeah. Amen. Well, but we're back. We're back. <laughs> that is both addressed to, I guess, you, the listeners, and God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Eric yes. is going to have to deal with all of this. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's read some credits and uh, get out of here. All right. Judge Whittacle is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Judge Whittacle Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Judge Whittacle. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Judge Whittacle is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. This podcast is brought to you in part by Hallow, the number one Catholic prayer and meditation app. Grow closer to God through Hallow's over 500 audio-guided contemplative prayers, including the Daily Examine and Lexio Divina. To download, head to hallow.com forward slash Jesuitical.